years ago, I was in a, um, uh, in a police car. I know. <laughs> I was in the front seat. It was a police ride-along. Uh, police ride-along was an opportunity for community leaders to, uh, to go and to travel around with uh, a police officer. I had a young police officer with me. It's just him. And, and I was riding along with him and just spending an evening understanding what it was like to be in the, uh, the shoes of uh, a police officer. Uh, at the beginning uh, of the evening, the young police officer explained to me, said that, you know, as we go uh, on calls, he said, the only thing I ask is that if there's ever gunfire, um, that I would get on the floorboard of the cruiser and, uh, and, and shelter myself. And I'm like, don't worry. Hopefully I will already be there uh, before the shots ring out. Uh, had opportunity, a couple of domestic uh, events to, to call on those, a couple of alarms going off, one of the most unnerving things to circle buildings in the middle of the night, uh, trying doors and looking behind dumpsters, never really knowing who's going to jump out. Uh, he was dressed as a police officer. I was wearing this, I, I was convinced it was a big neon yellow shoot me first vest. Um, uh, but I'll never forget one of the uh, one of the calls that we had. It was to go to the old Chatham Hotel. The old Chatham Hotel was once in its heyday a beautiful, beautiful facility uh, for uh, for people to stay in this old hotel, and it had become a, a place, a residence, but a very rundown residence. And as we got called in, uh, two other squad cars uh, were called in to handle a domestic uh, disturbance within one of the upper floors of the old hotel. And as we were walking into the building, I was watching the police officers. Uh, pulling out of their uh, their pockets rubber gloves. And they were putting on rubber gloves before going into this building. Um, and I was looking. I had no rubber gloves. And they said, you don't have any gloves? I said, no. They said, well, then do not touch anything. The implication was clear. It was a, it was a very, very um, a messy environment. Um, uh, a lot of things that you just wouldn't want to touch, but the implication was very clear that they were going in there to help. They were going in there to, to be a part of this in such a way as to bring aid and render assistance in a difficult circumstance, but the picture was very clear. They were going to go in there, and they were not really going to touch anything. They put on the rubber gloves uh, so that there would be that barrier, that safety, that separation uh, from that which they looked at as saying, yuck. Unclean, putrid, disgusting. These police officers were doing wise things. We're going to look today, though, at an amazing encounter of our Lord Jesus Christ and the intimacy with which He embraces a man uh, who, who wanted uh, to, to be helped. He needed assistance. He needed somebody to come and render aid and that there would be no, no rubber gloves, there would be no separation, there would be no barrier between our Savior and Him, that healing would come, that Jesus would enter into His world and bring sound, loosen His tongue of praise. This is God's Word. Let's rejoice in it together. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. Then He, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus, him, they begged him to lay his hands on him. And after taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers in his ears 
And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he says, Ephethah. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Pray with me, Lord, for your word we give you thanks. Father, would you, would you touch our ears that we would hear? And in our going forth, would our mouths be ephetha? May they be opened. May our tongues be loosed. Father, may we proclaim your goodness. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. As per usual, Mark gives a, a very abbreviated account of what's going on. It's one of the reasons I love to refer Mark to people who have never read the Bible. I say, well, let's start with Jesus. Friends, let me encourage you, if you ever have that encounter, that opportunity to talk to somebody who says, you know, I've tried to read the Bible and I've just not been able to get through it. Well, don't let that question just lie in front of you. Don't let that, that, that statement just sit there. Uh, talk to them about it. So really, so when, when you tried to read the Bible, how did you do it? Well, what do you mean? I started on page one <laughs> and started working my way through. I said, okay, all right. And, and explain to them that, that the Bible, you know, it... It comes from the word biblios, right? It comes from the word literally meaning library, that it's a collection of books. And, and the wondrous thing about that is though it is roughly, not exactly roughly in chronological order, uh, there's a good bit about this out of order, and there's a wonderful opportunity that we have uh, to come to that, that critical juncture in Scripture first so that everything else makes full and, and remarkable sense, and that is to look at the gospel. For it was our Savior Jesus who, in teaching about the entirety of Scripture, would speak about these things are testifying of me. When he spoke in the synagogue, he read from the prophet, and then he sat down, as was the custom. You'd stand to read Scripture, you'd sit down to speak about it. He sat down, he says, today in your presence, these things are fulfilled. On the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend, he explained, starting back with Moses and working his way through, why Jesus had to come, why the Messiah had to die. These things point to Jesus. Jesus is not a leprechaun hiding behind a rock in this story. He's not, you know, where's Waldo? It's not a, a divine, where's Jesus throughout Scripture? It is this wonderful unfolding of God's organic and perfect truth. And it and is pressing us to understand, to embrace, and to love Jesus. The unfolding story of man's sinfulness and need for redemption. We know that from the fall in Genesis chapter 3, man has needed a redeemer. The promise came, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But it was, as Galatians says, when the time was right that Jesus came. The time was right, for we had to understand the full implications, the wretchedness of our sin and our need for a Savior. Now Mark is, I think, a wonderful uh, synoptic gospel where it talks in, in action-oriented terms. It, it goes from event to event to event. And here we see a wonderful particular example of Mark giving us an abbreviated account of what really we looked last week at the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Uh, we see another healing this week. And what we're going to see is uh, basically a very brief account of what was really months uh, there among the Gentile crowds. 
There are many well-known incidents that would have taken place. Remember, as he's gone among the regions of Tyre and Sidon, he's deliberately gone out into Gentile territory, walking the Gentile soil to, to speak to those outside of where he would normally encounter uh, the Jews to whom the gospel had come. Remember, for the gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile. And the gospel is, is spreading and going out. There are several things that take place by the conclusion of this period. Uh, the Lord would be a topic of conversation throughout this whole region. The Decapolis, the ten cities. Matter of fact, there would be where thousands would come to hear and we'll see and there's another feeding we'll see uh, later in the next chapter. And this is really toward the end of the middle section of the ministry of Jesus and, and following this period. Uh, there's only going to be a few months really before we, we start heading uh, very deliberately uh, into Jerusalem for the crucifixion. Mark is telling us about the Lord ministering among these ten cities. Uh, area which includes things like the Golan Heights. Uh, it's all in the east of the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. Um, the, the Lord is there. And he, He's coming to a people that have not heard. Though they've begun to hear. People whose ears need to be opened, whose tongues need to be loosed, and one man is particularly brought to them who is such a poignant example of the healing power and the ministry of the Lord. And so we see this man. It says that he didn't come on his own. They brought to him a man. You see the community recognizing uh, that Jesus, there's something about this Jesus, there's a healing uh, that is taking place. They bring to him, they see uh, the value, they see the, uh, the blessing that Jesus is coming into the region. So they bring to him a man. It says he was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now these are, we see, to be... Very, very common. Those who do not hear, probably just a complete uh, hearing loss, uh, that if they speak, uh, being unable to modulate their voice, both in volume, uh, to be able to communicate in clear ways. We've, we've all uh, uh, communicated with people who had speech issues, and often an impediment of uh, hearing issues, an impediment of speech goes along with that. So they, they bring him to Jesus, and they beg him to lay his hands on him. They say, Jesus, would you heal this man? Well, I want you to see several things from this encounter. As they have brought this man to Jesus, I want to pay particular attention to the way that Jesus deals with this man. The very first thing that we see, we see right there in verse 33. Verse 33, it says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. I have to admit, this would not be my pattern of ministry. This would not be many uh, ministers pattern of ministry, and we certainly don't see it to be the pattern of ministry by those who would claim to be able to do this same thing today. Jesus takes them aside privately that these things would be accomplished. Now, it's an indication when he says that he took them aside, it's an indication this isn't the focus of what Jesus has come to do. This is not why Jesus had come first and foremost to heal people physically. Matter of fact, there are several occasions that we've already read and will continue to read where he draws away from that. Because if, if it's simply to heal bodies, if it's simply to open ears and open eyes, if it's simply to cleanse leprosy and make the lame to walk, if that's all Jesus came for, you understand what he's doing. He's simply triaging things for right now, but there is no final healing. There is no medicine that's brought after the fact to bring eternal healing. Jesus has come that souls would be healed and not bodies. But in order that He would minister and 
demonstrate that He is Lord of creation, that He would minister in compassion, and as James says, that He would not look at them and say, I know you're hungry, I know you're cold, but let me just tell you, be warm and well-fed and go on. He, he brings healing in a compassionate and a loving way. But here we see it's so very significant that Mark brings out, again, Mark, who's being very abbreviated, brings out that Jesus took him aside privately. Now today, if this were to take place, it would be featured in an arena, would it not? It would be an arena of thousands. Signs would be throughout the city. A healing ministry is coming to town. Come and, and watch people healed. Come with all your infirmities and be healed. And as a matter of fact, at the end, there would be the testimonies of all those who are healed as, long, as well as a 1-800 number at the bottom of the screen where you can call and make contributions. Operators are standing by. This, this would have been a, a ministry of, of signs. But Jesus says this, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that's always wanting signs. Prove it to me, Jesus. Prove it to me. So very often, Jesus was not going to be a performing animal for them. He was not going to put on a performance for them. Now, they have brought this man to them. And what Jesus does, and we're going to see this as it unfolds in the text, though the, the people brought him to Jesus out of compassion, maybe out of wanting a sign, we, we don't have insight into their motives. But what Jesus communicates is clear. This man is not a problem. He's a man. This man is not simply a case. He's an individual. This man is a man made in the image of God. He was made by God. He was made for God. And he is somebody who will live forever. As we all will, we will all live forever as does God forever, either in His presence or not. Turn with me back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. Keep your thumb where we are. And turn back to the prophet. Isaiah chapter 42. One of the things that's taken place there is a, a very simple, a very uh, powerful picture of, of the promise of the one who would come. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, not only is there a promise of what Jesus would do, but there is a description of how He would do it. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. We, we do recognize this to be messianic in nature. The servant, uh, my chosen, the one I uphold and whom my soul delights. He's speaking of Jesus. God continues as he uh, speaks to the prophet. He says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. We see this wonderful promise of our Savior. When it speaks particularly about that idea that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street, the gentleness with which he comes, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, that he would not use this man as simply a tool to, to demonstrate something else. That our Savior does not look at you and He does not look at this man. Yes, all things are done for His glory. All things are done for His praise. But He does not embrace us simply as a tool or a vehicle to be used for some other purpose. He looks at us with compassion and love. We see again and again and again that it's Jesus' heart that goes out. And He pulls this man aside. This bruised reed. This, this delicate burning wick. 
and, and he ministers to him in a loving way. Pulls him aside in a private moment. And there, this man finds healing. So it's a private moment with this man. But what else do we see? It is a, a, a peculiar moment for this man. It's, it's peculiar the way he does it. We, we see this description and we're, we're going to open it up a little bit more, but, but several things. First off, we know that Jesus could have saved at a distance, right? He just did that. He, he just did that with the Syrophoenician woman and, and her daughter, right? He, she came to him. She said, my daughter is possessed with a demon. And we heard the whole discussion last week about her, his discussion about uh, ministry to the Jews and to the Gentiles, discussion about children and, and little dogs and, and things like that. We looked at all that last week. But then Jesus looked at her and he says, go home, your daughter is better. Your daughter is healed. And at a distance, by the word of his power, the little girl is better. We find that in the case of the, uh, 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 the Roman uh, leader who he says, all you have to do is say, be healed, and I know what it is to command troops. Just say it and it's done. And we see this occasion that by his word, even at a distance, healing comes about. But we see a very peculiar moment. Uh, we see that Jesus could have saved at a distance, but he comes in contact with this man. He enters into his world and he communicates in a way that the man understands. It is a passionate moment, up close and personal. Now what does he do? Look, look at Look at the the description of what takes place. It says, he said he put his fingers in his ears. No, no rubber gloves to be sanitary there. <laughs> he puts his fingers in his ears. And it says he, he spits. Now, again, a, a, a peculiar description of what takes place. Spits and touches his tongue. And, and the best of the commentators that I've read about this that, that give some insight of why he does this is that we, we find that to almost be akin to a holy kiss. Uh, that that it, he is indeed uh, up close and personal with this man. Uh, fingers in his ears, spitting, touching the man's tongue. He could not have gotten closer to this man. And it is this compassion that leads to healing. And what he's telling this man who cannot hear is, I am going to make your ears hear. And as he touches his tongue, and your tongue is going to be loosened. He is communicating to a man who has not been able to embrace communication with others. Jesus is communicating in a way that he can understand. And hold on to that thought because we're going to wrap around and embrace that as we conclude today about how Jesus indeed paints a wonderful picture of our salvation in communicating with us and making us to understand. Now we see this wonderful passionate moment. And you think about how, how God... How, how God has, has, has dealt with us even from creation. That it, it was not that, that, that God just spoke and poof, there was man. Now by the word of His power, He spoke and all things came to be, but it, when it came time to create man in His own image, what did He do? He fashioned us. He fashioned us with His hands. He fashioned us out of the, out of the earth. And when it came time for, uh, for that helpmate that we so desperately need, right men? That's the amen. There we go. He said, he, he pulled that rib from the side of, of Adam. Again, a peculiar moment, but a passionate moment up close and personal when God enters into our world. We see Jesus. Jesus coming. And He touches this man and makes this man to know what's about to take place. What else do we see? We see it as a prayerful moment. It's a private moment, a peculiar moment, a passionate moment, a prayer full moment. How do we know that? Where do you see that, Pastor? I don't see the word prayer there. Yes, we do. 
Verse 34, it says he looked up to the heavens. It says he looked up to the heavens. What do you think he was doing? Stretching his neck? No, he lifted up his eyes. He, he looked to the one. He, he looked to his heavenly father. And he prays. And this time, it needed to be clear that it would be God who brings the healing. Yes, yes, Jesus is God incarnate. But we see that fellowship of God the Father and God the Son right there and that need for prayer. And He looks up and He prays. And we have to ask that question, where do we go in those times of need? Where do we go when, when we have uh, that powerful mission and ministry ahead of us? Do we lift our eyes up to heaven or do we remain so incredibly focused on the problem and the, and, and the presence of this world? I think about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, now he was given to extremes. He was a man of, of some radical measure. But Martin Luther said, if I spend less than two hours in prayer per day, then the devil gets his victory all the day long. He said, and sometimes, like today, I have so much busyness that I cannot get on unless I spend at least three hours in prayer. This was a humble moment as I was studying this particular passage of Scripture. The need, Jesus, absolutely capable of healing this man. That power, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, that power is, is His. He is the one who, who governs and sustains all things. It is, it is Jesus right there. That is the Son of God. That is the one who, who was, was there with the Father at creation. The one by whom all things have been made. And He who could heal, who had the power, looks up and gives praise to God His Father, who prays in that moment. And we think about the, the, the day's opportunities and the day's responsibilities that we have each day. As you go out tomorrow, there are going to be those things you look and say, you know what, I can handle this. I got it. This is within my power. I can make this happen. And we, we see no need to pray. We see no need to lift up our eyes to heaven. Why? Because we're looking to ourselves. We're looking to our own ability and we say, I can do this. And we're reminded in this moment that in all things, we, we look to God. In this moment... Jesus is, is confronted with the effects of the fall. He's confronted with a broken man. When we're confronted with the, the circumstances of this world, as we get discouraged by the sin we see around us, the brokenness we see around us, we think about all that has come because of the effects of the fall, the brokenness of this world, sin, disease, death, disaster, all of these things, that we have to cast our eyes to heaven. We have to look to God in prayer, for He is where our help comes from. Philippians 4.8, I quoted it earlier, that idea that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's right there. The next verse, Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, think about that. About what are you anxious? About what do you worry? About what do you have anxiety Verses four, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy, uh, worthy of praise, meditate on these things. Cast your eyes on these things. Look to the heavens rather than to your anxiety. Look to the Lord and not to the world. Colossians 3.2 in the same way says, Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. So we see this moment with Jesus that He is a prayerful moment. 
as Jesus deals with this man. A private moment, a peculiar moment, a passionate moment, a prayerful moment, and we see a moment of pathos, a pathetic moment with this man. What does Jesus do? After He looks to the heavens, what does He do, saints? Exactly. And that wasn't Bernie saying, are you done yet, Pastor? (sighs) He's got another point. He sighs. He sighs. <laughs> in my house, that can mean a number of things. In, in, in my house, uh, you know, if my wife does it, it's like, don't you get it? <sighs> and, and in my house, it's generally, are you really inconveniencing me with something? I'd much rather be sitting here watching TV. You know, the, the sigh can mean so many things. But, but as Jesus sighs here, uh, the Lord is is grieving. The Lord knows of our brokenness. He knows about broken homes. He knows about abandoned children. He knows about mental illness. He knows about demon possession. He sees the product of brokenness right in front of Him. A man who cannot hear, a man who cannot speak, and were it not for sin, these things would not be true. That this man would always be rejoicing in the sounds of nature, that the mountains themselves would declare God's glory, and creation would be praising Him continually. And his tongue would be loosened always, but for sin. Not his particular sin necessary, but for the fact that we're in a broken and sinful world. We have a Savior who understands, a Savior who sighs, a Savior who grieves, a Savior who will bring these things right. But in this moment, he looks, and like at the grave of Lazarus, he grieves, he weeps. He sighs. Christian, one thing that we ought to, ought to see from this passage in particular, as our Savior sighs, so ought we. That we ought to, to sigh. We ought to recognize that, that there is a world that needs help. A world that needs comfort and peace. A world that needs eternal assurance. And as we look at it, there are several ways that we can embrace the fallenness of our world. There's the way of the Pharisee as he stood there in the temple and he said, thank you, Lord, that we're not like those people out there. That's one way we can embrace it, right? A wrong way to embrace it, but nonetheless, it is a way we can, a path that we can choose. We can stand here as an enclave of the chosen and say, thank you, Lord God, that we're not like all those folks out there. Because have you seen the news recently? We can sigh. We can recognize this is not the way it should be. The broken world is because it's a sinful world. And our church, our church is a place for the broken. A quiet amen is good there. It is a place for the broken, it's a place for the deaf, it is a place for the mute place for the dirty. And we put on no rubber gloves to deal with them. We embrace them and love them. And I tell you, if Millbrook Presbyterian Church is not a place for the broken and the weary, the hurt, the wounded, if it's not a place, then it's not a place. It's not a place for Christians to call it a church. 
but I believe it is. I believe, and I believe that you believe it is. And it ought to be our prayer that the world would know that it is, that our doors are open wide, and that we'll sigh with them. And even more, that we will enter into their life as does our Savior. We see also that this is a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. Because what happens? Jesus heals the man. It's not enough that he understands, that he agrees with him, that he hugs him, and he says, okay, you know, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I understand. Uh, I wish there was something I could do for you. That's not the Savior that we serve. That's not the Savior that we proclaim. As we see a a watching, a waiting, a hurting world, we have a Savior who heals. We have a Savior that brings the solution, that makes things right. What happens? Jesus touches his ears. He touches his tongue. He enters into the world. He speaks to him with the language that Jesus would have heard as a child. Ephetha. He speaks to him in that Aramaic, that word, that word that he would have heard in his household about opening the door, letting things be loose, letting things be opened. He speaks to him intimately, personally, passionately, and powerfully, and healing is instant and it's complete. Amen? There we go. What do we see? It says that immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And what happens? He speaks plainly. Now, don't let that escape you. It's not just a description of, okay, he's healed. Think about that. We live in a day of great medical uh, ingenuity. We live in a day where so much can be done with modern medicine, where bones can be set, where, where healing can be uh, accomplished, where, where our bodies can be made better. But you know what? There's always, there's always recovery. But in this case, there was not. In that moment, it was instantaneous. It was not that synapses had to be relearned. It was not that he had to go to speech therapy for a period of time in order to be able to accommodate, accommodate his new ability to, to hear and to speak. It says immediately he was better. No therapy, no delays. Just like that boy who was lowered down through the roof. He was lowered through the roof. He had been on a cot for so many years. He had not been walking, yet Jesus healed him. And what did he have? Strong legs, powerful legs, healed legs that could pick up the cot and go. And what that is teaching us is that the salvation, the healing of Jesus is complete. And it is full. And it is perfect. And it is wonderful. He heals him powerfully in this moment. So how do we react to this, Christian? What, so what now, Pastor? What do we do? What, we, we heard that. It's a neat story. It's a wonderful story. But if there's no so what of Scripture, then, then basically we're like that man that James describes who looks in the mirror, says, wow, look at that, and walks away and, and forgets what he saw. Right? It's like the person that looks at their watch and you ask them, well, what time it is? Uh, what time is it? Do that for a while. It's actually kind of a funny thing. Somebody looks at their watch and asks them what time it is, they'll look at their watch again. 99% of the times, I promise you. You might not now because I've warned you about this. We, we actually look at our watch to see what time it's not. It's not time to go home yet. You look at your watch and you say, it is time to go home, Pastor. How do we react to the story? What's the so what of the Scripture? You see, preaching is to present the truth of God's Word, but to do it so in a hortatory fashion, to give exhortation, to call you to change, to call our lives to be different. We are to be instructed in this text. It's an incredible text, an incredible lesson about our own salvation. This man could not hear, but Jesus made him to hear. 
that he did not know it was coming, but Jesus entered into his world. He came into his world. He invaded his space. He changed his life. He made it so that the man could understand what was going on. And the first words that he heard was not a description of how the man might go and heal himself, but the words that he heard was, be opened. And our eyes, when they're open to the salvation of God, that we come to know that it is God who has come to us and made us well. It's not that He has presented the path of healing, but He has healed. He has made us well. I think about an incredible hymn that was written back in the 1830s, mid-1800s. The hymn goes like this, Lord, I was deaf, and I could not hear the thrilling music of Thy voice, but now I hear Thee and rejoice, and sweeter all Thy words and dear. Lord, I was dumb, I could not speak the grace and glory of Thy name, but now as touched with living flame, my lips Thine eager praises wake. That's a hymnist way of saying, I once could not hear Your voice, and You made me to hear it. I would once could not proclaim Your truth, and now You have made me to sing. The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said, The Lord can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear, and he can make him delight in listening to the very gospel with which he once ridiculed and despised. The Lord opens our ears, we hear the word, and we praise him for it. We are to be instructed in a text like this of the nature of our own salvation, but we are to be amazed like the crowd. The crowd was more and more amazed. They were astonished beyond measure. And even the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They, they just had to talk. They had to speak. They had to, to, to proclaim that he has done all things well. He's made the deaf to hear. He's made the mute to speak. It's amazing. Christian, I think we have lost the amazement of the gospel, the amazement of Jesus, the amazement of the fact that he's made me to hear. And He has given me a tongue to speak. We need to be amazed and we are to be, we're to be expectant. You see, there was the promise of Isaiah, of the one who would come to make the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. But there's also that promise that we find in Revelation chapter 21 of the fact that the infirmities of this man, and indeed all our infirmities, and indeed all the limitations and sins and the products of this broken and sinful world will be wiped away for in Revelation 21.4, it says that He will wipe away, God Himself will wipe away every tear from every eye. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain anymore. And the former things will have passed away. That we are to be amazed and expectant that this powerful Savior is the One who has came, come. That we would be healed and made well forever and ever. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that this Savior has come into our lives. He's touched our ears. Let Him loosen our tongues. May we praise Him forever. Pray with me. Heavenly God, our glorious Father, to You be the glory. As we sing, Lord God, may our eyes be lifted to the heavens that our songs would be a prayerful shout of rejoicing to You. To God be the glory. And Father, in going forth, Lord, may we enter into the lives of others as, as Jesus has entered into ours, as He came to know this man, as He came to love and to embrace Him in a dear and intimate way. Father, may we be known as a congregation that embraces and loves a hurting and dying world, that our hearts would go out and that You would work through us 
to minister grace, goodness, and love. In Jesus' name, amen.